It's Monday, November 27th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, 11 Israeli hostages, nine women and two mothers, were released to the Red Cross. This on the heels of Hamas releasing 13 Israelis and four Thai citizens Sunday. Overall, Israel has secured the release of 56 hostages since the ceasefire began, and in exchange, 150 Palestinians detained in Israeli prisons have gone back to Gaza. But there was one specific hostage who was on the minds and the lips of all the American TV Sunday shows. Here was Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation. Will we see four-year-old Abigail Idan released today? And are you confident this exchange will happen? This one four-year-old Israeli-American who was released was the only hostage mentioned by name and brought up to administration official Jake Sullivan on every single show on Sunday. Do you have reason to believe that the American you're talking about is four-year-old Abigail Adan? The child that has been taken hostage all these weeks by Hamas is Abigail Idan. Of course, she was just three years old when she was taken hostage, turned four just two days ago. Are you talking about the little girl, four-year-old Abigail Idan, who, of course, celebrated her birthday in captivity? And it makes sense for an American TV show to inquire about an American citizen for the benefit of an American audience. Now, is Abigail, or Abigail, as she actually spells her name, is her life worth more? No, not to God, but to her countrymen who are Americans, then yes. The revealed preference, I mean, we just heard there's a reason why she was asked about over and over again. The revealed preference is that one's fellow citizens care more about fellow citizens, which seems to go without saying, except so much in this conflict that I would assume goes without saying, does need clarification. But still, let's take the absolute stupidest version of the, is one life worth more than the other question? Here is a question from Sky News's Kay Burley put to an Israeli official. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised Um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? She is right, I guess, in a way, because she was speaking to a hostage negotiator who did raise that foolish point Here is Dr. James Alvarez speaking of the fact that Hamas was able to secure more than 150 prisoners in exchange for 50 hostages held by Hamas. Uh, It has an implication that, uh, you know, the the individual worth uh, uh, of an Israeli is more than the Palestinians. I'm guessing that's going to cause problems to to the Palestinians. Bad guess, but I suppose Kay Burley thought it was an excellent point. Normally, the better form of this argument goes like this. Israel has lost 1,200 citizens on October 7th. But since then, since their bombing and their invasion of Gaza, the death toll there has been much, much higher, many times higher. So we must ask, why is an Israeli life worth more than a Palestinian life? Well, for the same reason that newscasters in America asked about the one American life in the exchange we heard. That is how countries or governments work, or at least how they should protect one's own citizens, offer them protection from threats in the future. Failed states 
do not do this. They cannot do this no matter how hard they try. And it's a terrible situation for the citizens of those states. But states that are worse than failed states, because failed at least implies they were trying, monstrous governments do the opposite. They put their own citizens in harm's way as a tactic, really often, and in this case, basically the only tactic they have. And that just might work, well, up until the point that the non-deluded people of the world think for a second about the implications of acting otherwise and ask themselves which sort of place they'd rather be a citizen of. On the show today, we spiel our way over to the Fertile Turtle. But first... As the writer of the Daily New York Times newsletter, which probably programs much of American thinking about the news, David Leonhardt plays a huge role in helping us understand our world as it unfolds, and he is out with a new book, Ours Was the Shining Future, the story of the American dream, in which he surveys the modern history of the American economy and how it shaped us. David Leonhardt, up next. David Leonhardt is one of my favorite journalists because, you ready? Here's why. In a sentence, he follows the evidence. His new book is called Ours Was the Shining Future, the story of the American dream. And by implication, you hear the tense. I think it's the future subjunctive. It's acknowledging that things aren't as rosy as they once were in America. And he does trace the history of economics, and just the idea of progress and where it's gone and where it's veered off course. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize, David Leonhardt, joins me on The Gist. Welcome. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for that generous introduction. Given that you and I are about the same age and grew up in New York and probably both listen to talk radio, I have to say, longtime fan, first-time guest. Longtime, first-time. Mega dittos. Could you add that one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I enjoyed reading, and I think that you thrilled in not just uh, taking us to the normal and very important people who we think would trace our history, different presidents, maybe union leaders, but in this book, some of the signposted characters are, you know, Minnesota's uh, Olson and Robert Bork is there and Kevin Phillips is there and Huerta. And hey, the history of American progress can be told through familiar figures and not so familiar figures. And I sense that you thought it was more exciting to do it through the latter. Yeah. And I, I think it's two different types of, of less familiar. So there's both the people who you've never heard of or probably never heard of, like like Minnesota's populist Democratic governor during the Depression, Floyd Olson, who's weirdly been lost to history, even though some of the things he did actually um, foreshadowed what we saw during the Flint sit-down strike. And then there are the people whose names uh, almost everyone knows but I think some of their significance has been been lost. So that's Robert Bork um, uh, and others. And, and I did really enjoy, um, really enjoy that part of it. Yeah. A name that we all know now is Gorsuch, but you don't talk about the Supreme Court justice. His mom was famous and McGill Gorsuch, but you really highlight, and she's related to Bork, how her take on progress affects us to this day. Why don't you give me a little of that? Yeah. Um, so Anne McGill Gorsuch, as you said, um, was a uh, young lawyer in Colorado in the 1970s and decides to run for uh, the state legislature representing a fairly liberal, moderate 
um, heavily Jewish uh, district in Denver. And um, and she works really hard in the campaign and she manages to defeat her Democratic incumbent rival. And she's really in the vanguard of what becomes the Reagan revolution. And so she goes uh, into the state legislature and she tries to pass all these very conservative bills. Um, there were some feminists who had endorsed her because she was a woman running against a man. But she basically tries to undo certain women's rights when she gets to the, the state legislature. And she tries and she cuts taxes. And she is really part of this early success of the right in the 70s um, in a bunch of states. And so when Ronald Reagan wins the presidency in 1980, he and the people around him, they don't just want Republicans. They want conservative Republicans. They don't want Nixon or Eisenhower Republicans. And so they go looking around. And even though many of them in D.C. had never heard of Ann Gorsuch, um, they look at her resume. They interview her for the deputy head of the EPA. And they realize, wait a second. First of all, we don't really have any women in our cabinet. Second of all, this woman is really smart and really conservative. And they hire her as the head of the EPA, even though she hadn't even interviewed for it. And she then comes in and is part of this Reagan effort to just slash regulations. She becomes this very controversial figure. She kind of revels in her wealth. Um, uh, she doesn't appear to be the best manager. And so ultimately, the Reagan folks fire her. Um, and one of the few people who tells her basically not to resign gracefully, um, but to fight it, is her teenage son, Neil Gorsuch. Um, and so to me, she's an example of, at the time, people kind of looked at the Reagan revolution and asked, well, did it really succeed? And I think in the long term, it really did succeed. I mean, Reagan really succeeded cut taxes by its own terms, by its own terms. Yes. yes. So I think that's I think that's vital. So did it succeed in in fundamentally altering the trajectory of the American economy and government? Yes. Reagan cut taxes to levels they'd never been at before. Uh, Eisenhower and Nixon didn't try to do it. He really did deregulate. He really cracked down on unions. He really um, over he, he completely redid antitrust policy with Robert Bork being the most important um, theoretician there. He's remembered as a failed Supreme Court nominee, but actually in many ways, his biggest long-term legacy are his antitrust ideas, which, which really took over the courts. Um, and on, on those terms, the Reagan presidency represented a turning point. Now, as your question just foreshadowed, they didn't just say they were going to change the country and change the economy. They promised it would bring prosperity for all. And um, and I think it's important to look at the record of what it actually did bring. Yeah, it really is a turning point. You have the charts to bear this out. But we were on a trajectory of fairly steady progress post-war through Reagan. And then things, uh, unless you were in the top one or two percent, pretty much stalled. Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that the, the economy could have just continued on its, its path of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The United States economy had huge advantages in those decades that weren't going to be repeated. Think about the world we were competing against. In the early years, Europe and Japan were bombed out. Much of the Southern Hemisphere is dealing with or just emerging from colonialism. The Soviet Union and China are, have adopted this economic system that doesn't work called communism. And so we had all these advantages advantages. Um, and we would have had to change in part because of the higher oil prices of the 70s. But we didn't have to change as radically as we did. And we didn't have to move in the direction that Reagan moved us. And he 
Um, and I think it's important to say Reagan was not just a simpleton actor playing a part. He deeply believed many of these ideas. He stuck to them even when people said you can't get elected if you're that conservative. Um, he showed political bravery uh, in, in throughout the 70s. And, um, and, and he and the people around him said, look, if we do this, it, it will be better for everyone. And, and instead, um, in fact, income, wealth, all kinds of measures um, start to look worse in the 1980s for nearly every group but, but the very rich. And sometimes you hear continuing true believers argue, no, no, if you actually change the inflation adjustments in this other way, Phil Graham writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal every few months making this yeah. case. Um, and, <laughs> He's not going to lose his job at AEI if he keeps uh, emphasizing this point, that things are better than we think they are, according to Phil Graham's statistics. And and if look, I think that's wrong on the merits. But it, but if but if you think, well, wait a second, how do we really know what the right inflation adjustment is? I would say two things. Um, one, three things. One, look at other measures. Um, look at social measures like the percentage of kids who grow up uh, with two parents. Look at the percentage of people who spend time behind bars. Look at the percentage of people who have chronic pain. Um, those also look bad since the 80s. Yeah. Um, two, look at polls. Um, Americans for decades have been unhappy. And then three, uh, to me, which is the really clinching statistic, in 1980, the United States had a normal life expectancy for a rich country. For the last 15 years or so, we've had the worst life expectancy of any rich country. The, the, the hinge point in the data really seems to be in the 80s. It's the first chart in my book. Um, so Americans now live less long than people in Japan or Canada or any country in Western Europe, Australia. And I just think this economy hasn't worked for most people. And in many ways, what I wanted to do was tell the story of how we once had a better economy, uh, how we ended up with the economy we have, and then how we can still create a better economy again. Yeah. And you're more optimistic, I think, than someone who would call a doomer and you don't believe in uh, the vibe session. One last Gorsuch point, because you wrote it in the book and I looked it up. I'll just tell you this. I was very curious as to which was who's who was the senator who compared her to Suzanne Plachette? And I looked it up and it was William Proxmire opened up a Senate interrogation, grinning from ear to ear. I'm a fan of Bob Newhart, said the senator. As you know, his TV wife is Suzanne Plachette. You look like a young Suzanne Plachette. She just smiled as Proxmire continued. I've seen pictures of you. I've never seen you in person before. I've been smitten. I mean, oh my, it, oh my. <laughs> no, it's, 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 and it's, so I and said, that guy's, a, that guy's a, a liberal stalwart. That guy is a lion of uh, the post-war liberal order. And he was just, you know, blown away by her uh, brunette Bob. No, just like rank sexism, right? I mean, it just kind of, oh, he was, he's glorying in it. And I said, we can't go back to the forties and fifties and sixties in part because of economic reasons, but we shouldn't want to go back to those decades for, for reasons like that. Um, so <laughs> I'm not nostalgic for much of what there used to be. I think the important thing to say is these are decades in which life really was getting better and it wasn't just getting better for white Protestant men. This um, is really important. Yeah. There's this research I describe in the book that, you know, 92% of Americans grew up to earn more money than their parents who were born in 1940. 92% of Americans born in 1940 grew up to earn more money than their parents. <laughs> By definition, that includes uh, a lot of women. It includes a lot of non-white men. It includes a lot of non-Christian men. It includes a lot of people who grew up in poor families. 
And and really crucially, you see the black-white pay gap and the black-white life expectancy gap both start to shrink a lot in the 40s and into the 50s before the civil rights movement. And so this economy we had that was delivering prosperity to working class people in which the wages of, of poor and middle class Americans were rising even faster in percentage terms than rich people, something that today feels like it defies gravity. That economy helped a very wide range of people. And the fact that we've moved away from it is, is essentially a policy choice that our country has made. Right. Although, as each generation outstrips its predecessors in terms of income or other measures, it just becomes harder to do that. So the statistics are that 80% of baby boomers did better than their parents who came of age during the Depression. And then with Generation X, your and my generation, 60% of us will make more in our careers than our parents had. But babies born between nine, so babies born in 1980 were only as likely to earn as much as their parents earn. But this, to some extent, it's an indication, an indictment of the diminishing of the American dream. To another extent, it is an acknowledgement of uh, how good we had it, and maybe we can't expect to have that kind of growth forever. I think, I think it's partly true. I don't think for some of the reasons we've been talking about, we can expect to have the kind of growth we had in, in the 1950s and 60s again. But when you look at some of the trends like the life expectancy trends we were talking about, it's not like we've reached some final frontier of how good life can be. When you compare the United States to other countries in a whole bunch of ways, many of them are figuring out how to make more progress than we are, whether it's life expectancy or, uh, I mean, you and I are talking, heading into Thanksgiving weekend, and huge numbers of people are going to travel right now. And to me, one of the signs of stagnation is that it actually takes longer to travel within the United States than it did 50 years ago. If you try to go from New York to LA or pick two other cities, um, you'll spend longer in traffic, you'll have to get to the airport much earlier for security. And then most, most surprisingly, the scheduled flight time between New York and LA is longer today than it was 50 years ago, because there's more traffic and we haven't had technological progress. And you compare that to how other countries have figured out how to move people around more quickly, um, often through high-speed rail. Um, and, and we have not reached, it's not like life is just so great in this country that we can't improve it. Um, there really still are ways to improve it. And instead, um, we've accepted an economy with really high inequality and needlessly slow growth in, pe in most people's living standards. Right. But that is true. And I've often, uh, I've often thought about especially transcontinental travel and the planes haven't gotten faster. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, the likelihood of dying in a car crash has become so much lower. Crumple yes. zones have saved so many people. The cancer cure rates are fantastic, a fantastic efficiency. The economy of the United States since the Great Recession has so far outstripped the economy, the economies, all the economies of Europe. And I'm sure you saw all those statistics about how an assistant car wash manager in, I think it was Mississippi, makes more money and earns more in real terms than they were comparing it to uh, some fairly high profile college educated jobs in much of Europe. So 
Things aren't great, but then again, uh, I, I, you could say things can be worse, but so much progress is made and not even accounted for. No one says, hey, I didn't die today because I didn't get in a car crash because I have anti-lock brakes. But that actually is a phenomenon that's going on all the time silently underneath our experience. Yes. There are many ways in which life has gotten better. I opened the book by describing my paternal grandfather and great-grandfather, um, one of whom was fired from his job in New York because he was an Austrian citizen and considered an enemy alien, both of whom died in their 40s from, from diseases that probably would be treatable today. Um, I don't in any mean, way mean to suggest that, that life was better then than now. But I think the idea of the American dream and the notion of American optimism depends on people being able to experience progress in their own time, clear and consistent progress. And when you look at the 60 plus percent of Americans who do not have a four-year college degree, it is very hard to argue that they are experiencing clear, consistent progress in their time. When you look at income, their income growth has been painfully slow. When you look at their life expectancy, the reason the United States has fallen behind every other rich country in life expectancy, including some of the countries that we're outdoing in GDP, but because of the way our GDP growth works, it's so unequal. Some of it goes to things that don't make life better. Um, we now have the lowest life expectancy of any rich country. The reason for that is not because of what's happened to the life expectancy of college grads. Life expectancy of college grads has actually continued to increase at a pretty decent clip, a clip that looks like a lot of other countries. The problem is that the life expectancy of working class people had stagnated even before COVID. Um, and, and the gaps we're talking about are now enormous. And so when I think about communities where most people don't have a four-year college degree, and, and I think about, wow, when they look around, they really can't say my life is clearly better than my parents' life was. My kid's life is clearly better than mine. Um, in some ways it's better, in other ways it's worse. And um, I, even, if, even if I abhor the form that American political anger sometimes takes, I do understand a lot of that anger. Yes. And um, Ang Angus Deaton is the one who uh, came up with the idea of deaths of despair. And he's since amended it to not look at uh, the depressed white people, but depressed non-college graduates. Yes. Now, deaths, and and yeah. case too. Yes. Yes. Um, college graduates, it's, I don't know, it's funny. It's interesting. So much of our poor life expectancy is comes in a, just a few big buckets, obesity, opioid use, a little bit less gun crime. From what I understand, even like the fact that we have only 95% seatbelt usage instead of 99% like they do in Europe plays a role. But there is an indifference, and you point to this. This is disproportionately affecting non-college graduates, and there is an indifference among Democrats who are supposed to represent the working man, or maybe it's just a pure and flat out ignorance of the real experience that's adding up to these premature deaths and more of an obsession on ancillary beliefs that, you know, won't actually make their lives necessarily better. Yeah. So uh, the way I've come to think about it and, and argue this in the book is that if you think about the Republican Party, the Republican Party has adopted this set of economic beliefs. Um, 
that really haven't worked out for most Americans. Even if it was a reasonable theory in, in the late 1970s, hey, we're going to move to this laissez-faire economy and it's going to shock the economy into be much more dynamic and it's going to benefit everyone. There's a way in which that was a reasonable theory given the 70s problems. But we now have more than 40 years of evidence and it, it just really hasn't worked. I mean, you right. really have to look at the evidence in a skewed way to conclude it's worked for most Americans. Right. So that's the issue with the Republican Party. I think the issue with the Democratic Party is it, 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 the de- large parts of the Democratic Party are really disdainful of, of working people in this country. And, for, and basically what Democrats have said is all these views that working class people are more likely to have are beyond the pale. They're either ignorant or they're hateful. And so this is true on gun control. It's true on immigration. It was true on COVID school closures. It's been true on crime. And basically, the Democratic Party says, look, we can't compromise at all on any one of these issues because they're basic issues of, of, of goodness. And, it, and, and These are human rights. These are all human rights. And I think the idea that the Democratic Party has so turned off voters with this notion of you're either with us or you're against us, you're enlightened or you're not, um, really explains why, despite an economic policy that really often is better for working class people, many working class people look at the Democratic Party and say, no thanks. The same way many affluent Democrats in, in suburbs of New York and San Francisco look at the Republican Party and say, we don't care that we're voting for higher taxes uh, on ourselves. We're not willing to vote for that other party. And I think if the Democratic Party took a more respectful approach to working class voters, it would have a better chance of winning the world. And we're going to put a pin in this conversation right there, but David will be back tomorrow to figure out how these political parties can fix their problem connecting with constituencies. And we'll also discuss someone David considers to be one of the most important political figures of the last century, Robert F. Kennedy, important thinker and a man who changed his haircut to suit the times. Tune in for that. And now the spiel, hostage exchanges, a ceasefire extension, an arrest in the shooting of three Kifa-wearing Palestinian young men in Vermont. I know, I know, I know all about it. We shall be covering this, but have you heard about the goings-on at the Fertile Turtle? Channel 13 News Tucson has details. We told you yesterday about the heartbreaking update on more than 300 small animals that were transferred to the Humane Society of Southern Arizona. Okay, well, Humane Society, what could go wrong? Evidence shows most of those animals may have been frozen and fed to reptiles. So, first you'll notice the othering of reptiles that happened just there. The animals, cute, furry, we like them, fed to the reptiles, hideous beasts all. And then, after the frozen part, I mean, that's, I think, where their story ends. I'm not that invested post-frozen, you know, in the earthly remains of the animals, the only animals who are important to pay attention to. But apparently, Channel 13 knows it has a very sensitive story on its hands. It doesn't want to say anything upsetting or triggering to remind the audience of these innocent creatures and their senseless slaughter. 13 News reporter Shelby Slaughter has been following the issue and joins us live in the studio now. Shelby, you have some new information. Uh, you found. Unfortunate. 
Actually, to be fair, Shelby Slaughter did change her name for TV. It used to be Fawn Slaughter. She has sister Kitty Slaughter. But on this story, Channel 13 Slaughter was killing it. I spent all day digging into this, and this is what I came up with. Most of the animals you see here are nowhere to be found. So we don't see them that were, you tricked us? That's what you came up with? Sorry, slaughter on. Last anyone knows, they were handed over to a company called the Fertile Turtle up in Phoenix. That company is allegedly owned by Colton Jones. According to the Arizona Corporation Commission's website, there is no record of the Fertile Turtle or any business owned by Colton Jones. The Fertile Turtle, Mr. Colton Jones. But there, the trail goes cold. Literally, details has more, Shelby Slaughter does. Now we're learning a horrible fate they may have faced. In a text message obtained by 13 News, it shows an alleged August 8th conversation between Colton Jones, who took ownership of the animals, and another person. The text message reads, Do you have the ability to freeze a bunch of guinea pigs and or rabbits? I don't have the manpower or labor to be able to do it in time for the show, and it's too much for me. If only the fertile turtle had gone by a more explicit name so they'd have known the slurpin' serpent or desserts by the linzer tortoise. What's fascinating to me, though, is this story has caused shockwaves. The Arizona Animal Humane Society fired its CEO. The COO resigned. The San Diego Humane Society has a webpage with 11 different statements and updates, including the announcement of a full investigation to be released shortly. The story made internet national news. The British tabloid The Mirror covered it. Websites everywhere covering it. The New York Times headline, animals meant for adoption may have been turned into reptile food. The fate of more than 250 rabbits, guinea pigs, and rats remains unknown more than three months after they were sent to a humane society in Arizona. You fed my rat to a reptile, you snake. You told the authorities about that, you rat. I do think we need to know what percentage of the rodents were actually rats to really care. But this is what animals do. They eat each other. Don't reptiles need rodents in order to keep being reptiles? Which, I looked it up, is a form of animal. Humans, also a category of animal, are losing their jobs and their shit about this. Maybe I lack humanity. Maybe I don't quite understand the human overlay of ethics and logic onto the remorseless world of animals. Maybe the fault is a fault of mine. Perhaps I identify more with the scaly creatures than the furry ones. I mean, when I first heard about this story, I did say, yeah, that really is sad that these animals had to eat frozen food. Then I took a new inventory and I came to the conclusion that perhaps, like the well-fed reptiles in this tale, I am just too cold-blooded. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. They are both very much mammalian. They have warm, beating hearts, and the blood that flows through them is the blood of human kindness. Michelle Pesca, let us hope she never hears what I had to say about the furry animals. She does not like lanternflies, but she likes anything with a tail and feet. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening.